0: When the younger children were babies, I remember Pather standing at the cot if the children were what I called cranky and what he would say were fractious. And this would be at night time, trying to get them to sleep. And he was playing on the bow
1: My mother, Nula, has vivid memories of my father, Pather, singing us to sleep when we were children.
0: He had a beautiful voice, very soothing. And he would play that and they would go off to sleep. And he said it was reminiscent of the heartbeat of the mother when the baby was in the womb and with the baby outside the womb, in the cot, that this was what the baby was hearing.
1: My name is Mel Mercier. My father, Pather Mercier, was a Bowron and a Bones player a member of the Chieftains and Sean the Scolthory Coolan, In the 1970s, he became the first professional boweron player in Ireland. When I was a young boy, my father introduced me to the bowron and the bones and inspired me to become a musician. Now, 25 years after his death, I'd like to share his story as told through the voices of his family and friends. When my father first began to play the baron, there were very few people making the instrument, and it wasn't easy to come by one. And so he made his own, something my mother and brother Peter remember well. He brought home
2: a goatskin. skin. He cured uh, the skin at home and made uh, a baron. He cured it in the bath. He soaked it there for, oh, it seemed like forever. Uh, and my room was right next door.
0: By the time the week was up, it was unbelievable, the smell. And, and we had no shower at that time, so I don't know how we managed. We just probably managed at the sink. But he did eventually manage to make a very nice bower on because I remember we used to be out watching him in the garden, you know, and he'd be um, pulling it. In fact, I think he, he would have had some of you pulling it as well. To to making a taut while he put it over a garden sieve, the rim of a garden sieve and it did end up as a very nice boron it had a lovely sound, I do remember that because it was lovely and soft
3: My name is Pella Mercer and I played the Baron and the bones One has to make one's own because the borons that are available in the shops have not the right tone though they're very well made and one has to procure a skin somewhere and and cure it and fashion it and come up with something that is satisfactory and gives the type of quality that one requires well the best skin in my opinion though there are opinions about this held elsewhere that it is the goat skin is the best skin of the lot though they say that a dog skin is good particularly a greyhound skin but i prefer the goat skin I have played on barons made of greyhound skins, and uh, without punning, it, the greyhound skin in my opinion tends to run.
1: Back in the 1950s, when Daddy began to play the boweron, it was just beginning to emerge as a musical instrument.
4: The first time the Baron had been lifted onto the stage was with John B. Keane, I think in his play Sive in 1957.
1: Professor Mihal Osulawan has always been fascinated by the history and the musical development of the
4: Baurong. For many people, including myself, that was the first sight, uh, actually, of the Baurong, because, of course, I grew up in the town rather than in a rural district. And then the next time I saw it, in a way, was on television, in the hands of Sean O'Reilly, but also in the hands of Pather, your father, who, of course, was the Baurong player with O'Reilly's Kotori Cool, and then later on with the Chieftains. In Father Mercier's hands, he became the conduit or the mediator between the old world and the new world of the baron. The old world, of course, is is the folklore, folk life world, which is in rural Ireland where the instrument exists in the hands of one of the wren boys on the 26th of December every year, St Stephen's Day, hunting the wren. And when O'Reilly lifted it onto the concert platform, onto the stage, Pather was there to actually carry the instrument between those worlds.
1: My father didn't start to play the Baron and Bones until he was in his 40s, quite late in life. It was his love of the Irish language, a passion that developed in his teens, that led him in later years to the Baron and traditional music. daddy was born in 1914 and began life as Herbert Peter Mercer. In the 1920s and 30s, however, he went through a transformation of his identity and became Pather Mercier. He was very much his own invention, as my brother Paul reveals.
5: Well, here's a man who came from a Protestant background in Northern Ireland. But also, I have to say, a very strong Catholic background too, because his mother came from a very strong Catholic family in Cork. So there would have been tensions, a lot of tensions going on there. Bear in mind as well that when his father and his mother met and got married behind the altar in Northern Ireland in Belfast, in St. Patrick's Church and when his father agreed to allow those children to be brought up as Catholics, that Ireland was still part of the British Empire. It was all one country. Here's a man now who grew up as a young child during the First World War in Cork and then he was in Cork during the period of the Black and Tans and then he started to to see himself in the new Ireland of the 20s and the 30s and particularly in the 30s I think he really discovered what he really was which was, was a nationalist and a Republican
1: My dad's father James Appleby Mercer II a Northern Protestant Congregationalist married Elizabeth Mary Weldon, a Cork Catholic, in 1909. With their six children, they moved from Cork to Bray in the early 1920s. After he left school, my father had various jobs as a door-to-door Hoover salesman, a gardener, and a shop assistant. His interest in music would develop later in life, but for now, he found other ways to express himself, pursuing his love of dancing and his passion for language.
5: In that time, he discovered the Irish language as well, which added to his, his identity, became part of his identity. At some point, he went to the west of Ireland. He went to Carroll, and he lived with a blacksmith in Carroll and started to learn the Irish. But not only was he learning the Irish, he became adopted by those people. In fact, he probably found that he found a sense of family, a sense of belonging that he did not experience in Bray. And they called him, his nickname at the time was Pather Agawa, Pather of the blacksmith. He was called Pather because his middle name was Peter. And he comes home then, back to Bray, after that experience, and he tells everybody, hello everybody, I'm no longer Peter Mercier, right, or Herbert Peter Mercier, I'm now Pather Mercier.
1: I always knew my father as Pather, but there was always a sense that he had a kind of dual identity. He was pather to many, but to some, including his siblings, he would always be Herbert or Herbie.
5: I think his family would have looked upon this name change as something that was just temporary passing. It would go, it was just one of those moments of self-expression. But it didn't, because his love of the language was so deep and it endured for the rest of his life. But that also tied in to his involvement in Irish traditional music. There's no doubt about it that when he took up the bowron and started to play the boweron, everything started to fall into place for him.
1: By the 1940s, my father was very involved in the Irish language community in Bray. Amongst those who shared his interest in the language and culture were writer and broadcaster Dermot Brannock and filmmaker and musician Eamon de Butler. Some years before he died, I interviewed Eamon and he spoke to me about his friendship with my father.
6: I knew Pallagh when, when, when I was very, very small. He came around to uh, my mother's house uh, knocking at the door and tried to sell her a Hoover. He was travelling for Hoover's, and my mother, my mother, of course, <laughs> wasn't interested in buying a Hoover's, she didn't have the money to buy a Hoover, but Pallor was absolutely stunned when he heard us all speaking Irish. He couldn't believe it, because he had taken an interest in Irish, and had actually gone down to the Gaeltacht in Connemara. He had won a scholarship to go to the Gaeltacht, and he just couldn't believe his ears when he opened the Darga Valley in Bray, where nobody spoke Irish, and I mean nobody. Uh, and he just couldn't believe when he saw these young fellows playing around the garden speaking irish so uh, my mother when he didn't succeed in selling a uh, hoover when he started to chat to my mother to see mm-hmm. and my mother said to him she, said she wouldn't buy a hoover from him but that if, if he'd uh, if he mind the children and play with them out out in the river she'd give him his
1: lunch right. <laughs> so, so he used to come up regularly and he'd do a free clean as well uh, when his days as a door-to-door salesman came to an end, my father lost touch with Eamon and his family. But 15 years later, they met again. My father was now married to Joan O'Brien from Bray, and they had two children, Peter and Francis. The family was living in the Onoiga Youth Hostel at the foot of the Sugarloaf Mountain in County Wicklow, where Daddy was employed as the warden, and where he hosted informal gatherings of music and song which Eamon often attended.
6: This was a regular uh, meeting place then for us, and there were uh, regular parties. And Pather, you see, having come back from Connemara, had a few traditional songs. So uh, we'd be, uh, at that time, there were uh, what we call a skurriacht, uh, which would be a a huli. And we'd attend those things, and Pather would be asked to to sing. And in true traditional Connemara fashion, Pather would have to take the chair, you see, and turn the chair back to front and put his foot up on the on the bottom rung of the chair and singing song. I mean, yeah. his favourite was the Thammehachseil
1: uh, Lenardon. That was his
6: favourite yeah. one. His. Yeah.
1: Daddy continued to immerse himself in the Irish language community in Bray and Dublin in the 1950s. And he made regular trips to Connemara with Eamon, Diarmid and others. He also became very active in the Bray Debating Society and he won competitions with his eloquent, witty and entertaining debating style. Sadly, in 1951, my father's wife Joan died of pneumonia at the age of just 30, five years after they were married. Daddy left his job at the Onoiga hostel soon afterwards to take up a new full-time job with G&T Crampton Construction Company in Ballsbridge. It's likely that Daddy came across the baron from time to time on his trips to Carraroe, or at some of the Irish dance and music events he attended with friends. Sometime in the late 1950s, he decided to take up the instrument himself. In 1960, just a few years after he had started to play the baron, Éamon de Butler introduced him to the composer Sean O'Reilly, who was by then well known as the writer of the score for the film Misha Era*. Oriada was looking for a bow player at the time, and when he heard my father play, he immediately invited him to perform for a production of his play, Spalpina Rune, and a few years later to become a member of his groundbreaking traditional music ensemble, Kjolthori Kulin. I encountered your father for the first time.
7: I encountered Pather when he joined uh, Kjolthori Kulin. I think. When I went to Keolthorí Coolen first Sean O'Ready used to play the borón, and then O'Ready went on the harpsichord, and as he uh, said himself, I think one time he brought in a real borón player, and that was Paddy Mercer. <laughs>
1: the Cork singer, Sean O'Shea, recorded on Pukkairbwila with Keolthorí Coolen in 1962, and he continued to sing with the group throughout the 1960s. His distinctive tenor voice was one of the defining sounds of Kyothori and of the times. Sean remembers when my father joined the group and he spoke to me about the distinctive style of Bowron playing he brought to the ensemble. He was a great musician, a great percussionist who
7: always saw his role as to provide a basic rhythm and I think sometimes he sacrificed his own playing. He wasn't out to tell anybody I'm the best boron player in the world. But what he was was the the steady rhythm was there the whole time, which of course is what a boron player should do because there were no boron solos in those days. <laughs>
1: My father's bowron playing also made a good impression on Sean O'Reilly, the son,
3: Pather. Straight away I noticed that your father was a much more uh, professional boron player than my father. First of all, he had a lovely boron. And secondly, he played using the stick the way that uh, most people use it, which was uh, in, your, in the palm of your hand and, and, and backwards, as it were. And he also had great rhythm.
1: My dad was a self-taught musician, with no formal training in music. He came to the Bauron relatively late in life, but within years of taking up the instrument, he began to pioneer a new style of playing. Despite his innovations, his style remained relatively uncomplicated. He played rolling, repetitive rhythms that emphasised the pulse, or the heartbeat of the music. And he played with flair and subtlety. His distinctive sound and compelling rhythms are heard on this piece, O'Neill's March, from the seminal the Sighéity album. In the 1960s, as interest in Irish music was growing, the Baron shared in the spotlight. And as in this interview for the BBC, Daddy was often invited to talk about the emergence and the musical role of the instrument.
3: The function of the bowran is to enhance and that it is not in itself uh, to be taken as, as something to listen to because it merely it sort of interprets for the listener in the sounds within the music itself as distinct from the melody. And therefore one plays that rather delightful role of second fiddle all through one's musical life in relation to playing the baron, because that is your function. And to attain to that humility in relation to the other musicians is a quite a profound thing in itself.
1: Many of the musicians I interviewed shared their memories of my father's character and persona, both on and off the stage. When I met with the Shannos Nose singer Irla O'Linord and the broadcaster and musician Tony McMahon, their descriptions of my dad really brought him into vivid presence.
8: Well, I met your father around the time that I met Sean Oreda, and I was immediately struck by his difference. Physically, he looked quite different to the people I'd been used to meeting. There was an old world formality about his dress and his presentation. And he had a dress formality, although a bit koreapuk, suit and tie and shirt. His hair and his mustache were very, very prominent and his his eyes, he was the kind of person that you looked at once and you did not forget him. But it is when you talked to Father Mercier that you began to open out into a different world. He was a mentor of mine.
4: I do recall your father, it struck me as a graceful man you know even in quietude he sort of expresses a gracefulness and even a still photograph really really suggests that to me very strongly he had this calm about him you know even the photographs of him playing are there's a sense of alignment he, he appears very distinguished in his relationship to the kind of physical space that occupies both himself and the
8: instrument. We played many times together, and I have a distinct memory of the atmosphere of our music. Playing with your father, Pather exuded a whole swath or an envelope of comfort because my music was jerky, aggressive, out of time and scatty, but he exuded a calmness And it got me to relax when I was playing and play more gently and more softly, as he did play.
1: In the mid-1960s, Daddy was still very much a part-time musician. He was holding down his full-time job as a building supply store manager and his family was growing. By the time I was 11, I had nine brothers and sisters, eight of whom were born to my mother, Nuala, who married my father in 1957. We were now living in Black Rock in County Dublin, and like any typical family at the time, my siblings and I were listening to many different kinds of music at home. We were all big fans of top of the pops and the popular music of the day. My brother Paul and I, perhaps because we were a little older, were also beginning to tune into my father's musical world. And when he taught us to play the bowron, we were hooked. In 1962, Paddy Maloney and several other members of Kjolthori Coolan formed the Chieftains and recorded the group's first album. When the original bowron player David Fallon left the group in 1966, Paddy Maloney invited my father to join the Chieftains. Michael
9: Tuberty was the flute player with the group. The Chieftains formed and uh, he replaced the first Boron player that we had, Davy Fallon. You know, he was a farmer and he just couldn't don tools and he probably had to milk the cows and <laughs> so on, you know. So it, it wasn't easy for him. So Paddy asked your father to, to join. I suppose that was the sound of the Chieftains then. So once it was established, well boron was part of the group. As the group developed, there was more demands, and when you started making more LPs, you'd have to be introducing new ideas, I suppose.
1: The Chieftains developed a distinctive style, playing dance tunes and harp music in innovative ways that owed much to Sean O'Riada's earlier development of a new concert style of traditional music. Learning to perform increasingly complex arrangements of the music was challenging for all of the musicians in the group, including
9: my father. We had great experience, I suppose, uh, all the musicians, anyhow, having been playing with Sean Oreda and all the arrangements he was introducing. All that was kind of becoming acceptable to us. At the beginning, we thought it was all very strange, very odd. I I think Pather had a little bit of difficulty, I think we all had, but... um, through time I suppose we got used to it and we uh, accepted it and absorbed it I suppose up to a point.
1: The Chieftains 4 LP features one of the group's most inventive arrangements, the Morning Dew. My father also played the Bones with the group and their sharp percussive sound is used to great effect here. On the recording the Bones and the Bowron are heard in glorious stereo. By 1973, when the Chieftains Four album was released, the group was very well known throughout Ireland and was celebrated in the national and foreign press as an unlikely international folk phenomenon. The following year, the Chieftains turned professional. My father left his job with Cramptons and at the age of 60 became the first ever professional bowron player. What followed was a period of dramatic change for the group members and their families. With the increased demands of concert tours, recordings and radio and TV appearances, my father was away more often, performing in places we had only seen on our school atlases. This new chapter in his musical life changed the domestic rhythm in our house and it was my mother who kept everything flowing at home. He loved
0: doing what he did. You know, but going away then was another thing. He he didn't particularly like being away that much, you know, and the kids were very small and I was here, but I didn't mind at all. I actually quite liked looking after family. I mean, in those days, that's what you did, you know. When you got married, especially if you were in the civil service, you left and that was it. You, you weren't allowed to work again while you were married, you know.
1: Daddy's return from foreign trips was eagerly awaited by all of us, not least because he always came home with carefully chosen gifts for each one of us. Forty years later, some of my sisters, Ruth, Anne, Claire, Siobhan and Cara, and my brother Val, remember in detail some of the presents he brought them, as if it was yesterday.
7: She's better than me.
1: One
0: time we got these beautiful... Multicolored trousers. We all did. All the girls. I'm not sure what the boys got, but we uh, we all got them. And oh my God, they were just amazing. I have a feeling it was some kind of Scandinavian country that you come back from, and uh, we never had anything like that because we had all that same sort of clothes, all hand-me-downs. So this was just you know, like off the wall, really. Like what we what we got. We were we were delighted with them. Go, leave.
1: really remember the gyroscope he brought back one year it
5: was fantastic it was like Mm. something from outer space you know I think he got it in Paris or somewhere Mm. but you know there was a a whole magic there you know Um,
0: I remember getting a yellow pair of jeans (laughs) that I just just were the business I thought they were the and I was very proud of them right? but I remember (laughs) we always got like big long strips of chewing gum from different countries mm. which we loved as well with the little cartoons in them yeah or mm. the flip books that we got from america i yeah. remember that oh god i loved them yeah. mm. with the mickey Mouse.
2: i got a fortune telling <laughs> and like a ball fortune which i thought was just the most exotic yeah <laughs> i was a little bit embarrassed by the irish traditional music at the
7: time but when he brought home like the mcgarragals from from the States, that was the best thing ever. Like, that was brilliant. Played that record over and over and knew every single song off by heart. That would be for me one of the abiding
9: memories.
1: Many who heard my father play at this time were inspired to take up the instrument and he set in motion a period of unprecedented innovation in bauron playing, that continues today. Johnny Ringo McDonough is perhaps best known as the bauron player with the traditional music group De Donen. He developed an exciting and inventive style that brought the bauron to a new level. When I met him recently, he spoke about my father's influence on him.
8: The main thing with your dad, like he was playing, was was brilliant. It was, uh, how will I say, not too complicated, <laughs> as it is today. The other thing I picked up of your father is the movement of his arm. It was like it's what people call today. They call it the motor rhythm.
1: Almost 50 years after Johnny first heard him play, I can still hear the influence of my father's playing on his style. Johnny also brought his own innovations to bowron playing, however. He was the first to introduce tonal variation on the instrument, using the hand and fingers on the back of the drum skin to vary the sound. So
8: everywhere you go, you get a different tone, every part you touch. It's like a human being, (laughs) except it's a goat.
1: Tommy Hayes one of the original members of the group Stockton's Wing was another young player listening to my father in the 1970s
7: I suppose one of my favourite tracks of all times would be the one he did with Pat Kilduff. I remember listening to him talking about it on the radio actually where he was saying it was one of his favourite recordings When I talk about rhythm I think of it in kind of three layers I think about somebody who, who doesn't have a great sense of rhythm and that they're the kind of move below the rhythm line, as you see rhythm as a line and then there's somebody who's got a good sense of rhythm and they're on the line and then there's somebody with a brilliant sense of rhythm and they're bouncing on it. That's what I remember about that track, was your dad was bouncing on the rhythm and that to me is, is the epitome
1: of somebody who dances with the notes. As a member of the Chieftains, Daddy appeared often on television and radio and was sometimes invited to be a guest presenter on RTE. This gave him the opportunity to tap into his passion for language and to share his thoughts on music and music makers, as in this clip from the
3: 1970s traditional music programme, The Long Note. Of course, pipers are even worse, and flute and whistle players perhaps a little less intolerant by a very few degrees. Is there anyone then who is prepared to accept the humble bow player on an equal footing? Yes, it seems there is. And ironically, it is the man without any musical instrument at all, such as the Liltered Pat Kilduff. Listen to the reel, The Hunter's Purse, and you will see what I mean. As far as I'm concerned, I've never played the Boweron better, and for that, to Pat Kilduff, I am truly
8: grateful.
1: By 1975, my father had recorded four albums with the Chieftains and had played with the group on the Academy Award winning soundtrack for Stanley Kubrick's film Barry Lyndon. The Chieftains were playing sell-out concerts across the world, from the Albert Hall in London to New York's Carnegie Hall. This was an exciting time for my father, but it was also challenging for him. In his early 60s at the time, He was almost 25 years older than the other members of the group, and the ever-increasing demands of international touring and performing and life as a professional musician didn't suit him as much as it did the others. And with a large family at home, including eight children still at school, he wasn't happy to be away for such long periods. In 1976 then, at the age of 62, he made the difficult decision to leave the Chieftains. While he was close to retirement age, he still needed to find work to support his family and to secure his pension. And so he took on a job as a night watchman. My mother, Nuala, and siblings, Francis, Paul, and Ruth, recall this uncertain and somewhat sad time in my father's life.
0: Well, he had retired from Crampton's where he was working before he he went with the Chieftains. And, um, And then when he left the Chieftains, of course, um that was a big void, it was a big void. He was not very happy at that time. Then Dad had to, had to find work. He
9: had to go and you know, find, find a job somewhere and he was working as a security man. Yeah, I remember going up to
0: visit him. Yeah, I've, I've hard memories of that. You know, feeling sorry for him and yeah. They were difficult times, Mel.
5: All I appreciated was that my father now was up in a building site looking after a building site on night shift. And he was on his own. But I looked at it as well as a very positive time for him. I actually, I marveled at how he dealt with it. Absolutely marveled. And I uh, used to love going up to him. And I know we, we, you went up to him and others with this as well. Because it was a great time to talk to him. And actually, it was one of the few times that I remember having had those conversations with him
2: was a very bleak time, but I also think that he would just make the most of it as well. You know, he had time on his own or whatever, and he would observe the, you know, what was going on around him in a way. But he was quite good like that, I think. You know, and he would pick up on stuff and notice his environment, and, and you know, he would just be there.
1: My father wrote poems and songs throughout his life, and in the years after he left the chieftains, he turned to poetry more and more to express himself. He showed no interest in having his poems published, but he enjoyed sharing them with family and friends. He also liked to record himself reading them on his cassette machine, and he wrote all of them down in his notebooks, which we still have. Will we have a look in, in the poetry, because there are a couple of poems there that Daddy wrote when he was the night watchman. If you just want to flick through them there. I asked my sister, Cara, to read one of the poems Daddy wrote on the building site. There you go. Site development. Mm -hmm. That's the 22nd of July,
0: 1977. (laughs) Okay, this is site development. There is no growth, there is no life, no lush green grass, no insect buzz. On these once pasture fields, now caterpillared into dust, all around lie mounds of bulldozed earth, caked by the summer sun, arid, dry, incongruous. I walked these naked roads so cruelly raped, alas poor virgin land, and paced them, and paced barefooted. them barefooted. I know not why, I know to try not perhaps, why, to, to, try show perhaps to show compassion or even, or tenderness. even tenderness, or
3: was, or was it, it by it some in instinct deep within for this sad place of sacrifice? Came with little puffs of dust, dust spouting, spouting sea like spray. sea spray in between the inlets of my toes.
5: the clay beneath was the clay beneath hot, was it was hot
3: as if with shame. And there beyond I saw the boundary wall in stone stand steadfast, staunch, grey, disconsolate. In 1979,
1: my father reached retirement age. And while he was still performing occasionally and was very involved with Grey as a regular adjudicator for the Slogan music competitions, he stopped working full time he took the opportunity to spend more time in our small suburban garden, which had always been a place of reflection and creativity for him. As my brother Paul reminds me. Dad
5: was in Cramptons in the 60s when there was a lot of demolition going on in Dublin. Here was the New Ireland and Cramptons were clearing these buildings and Dad was working for this company and every so often he was coming home with pieces of masonry and pieces of these buildings and pillars and old Victorian windows old Georgian windows and everything. He made a glass house, two glass houses, actually, out of uh, Victorian Georgian windows, and he grew his tomatoes in them. These, these were right here. He had two glass houses here. I mean, there were fine structures. He even built a porch with some of the old timber as well. And, and then he decorated the garden and pathways with the old stones from these buildings. There's a pieces of pillar here, marble structures and everything like that. And it was like a, a salvage yard, full of flowers. It was like a paradise.
1: Throughout his time with Keolthori Koolan and the Chieftains, and in the years that followed, Daddy and I often sat together at home playing the baron and Bones. We could never have foreseen that we would one day perform as a duet with one of the most influential experimental composers of the 20th century. One evening in 1979, the phone rang in our kitchen in Black Rock. The American composer John Cage was on the line and was ringing to ask my father if he would play the Bowron on a recording of his new piece called Roratorio, an Irish Circus on Finnegan's Wake. My father said yes and convinced Cage to bring me along too. In that moment, an unexpected musical chapter opened for Daddy and for me, and in the years that followed, we performed with Cage across the UK, Europe, and North America. Daddy and I entered an unfamiliar world of new and experimental music. We performed *Roratorio* with several other Irish musicians, including Paddy Glackin.
2: It was yourself and um, Pather, and Joe Heaney, and Seamus Tansy, Liam O'Flynn. I think that was the that was the crew, and. To actually hear the piece of music for the first time in in rehearsal in Toronto was um, well, it was a new experience. It was like nothing I'd ever heard in my life, and it took me quite a while to get used to it. But as we rehearsed and rehearsed, the thing started to make some sort of sense. So sometimes you would have say the pipes could be playing in air and I could be playing a hornpipe and Seamus Tansy could be playing uh, you know a dance or something and the Borans could be playing a a reel and all of a sudden just the 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 sounds would come together and it'd be might only be for four or five seconds but it was it was almost like a perfect harmony
1: Throughout the 1980s, we played with John Cage at least once a year somewhere in the world. The final live performance of Roratorio took place at the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival in November 1989. I was 29 and Daddy was 75. Philip King was there gathering materials for his TV series Bringing It All Back Home and he recorded my father reflecting on this late and unexpected chapter in his musical life. Yeah, well,
3: for a, for a lo- very long time, I, I didn't know what I was part of. The whole thing was so extraordinarily strange, like, you know. At first, I thought it was dreadful, utterly dreadful balderdash. <laughs> <laughs>
8: but
3: as time went on, I, 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 be, I began to listen, and I, I gradually fell in love with the thing. And like everybody else in life has something to look forward to, their holidays or to go fishing, whatever. <laughs> and what I look forward to most and than anything else is another rottario with John and the other musicians. And it's really marvelous to think that something that to me was ugly at the outset now stands as a little joy in my life. <laughs>
1: Daddy played the Bowron for 30 years. Drawing on an innate musicality and poetic sensibility, he created a more refined, modern style of playing the instrument, which served as a template for a whole generation of Bowron players. The musician, Don Lunny, himself an innovator on the Bowron, reflects on my father's musicianship and his legacy. He actually,
6: I think gave the music um, a gravitas and an importance that it otherwise mightn't have had. One thing I really adored about his playing was it, the constancy of it, and the fact that he would, when he expressed a rhythm, that he would maintain that rhythm like faultlessly and and constantly for uh, maybe the duration of uh, once around the tune. And then he might change, and he might take it somewhere else and do the same again. But he kept, there was this. Uh, brilliant um, uh, evenness and consistency to his playing that I think was exemplary. And I think it influenced an awful lot of people in their playing. And it was exactly the right kind of influence that the borough needed.
1: My father died on the 6th of September 1991. The traces he left behind, the sound of his voice, the pulse of his music, and the sense of his spirit, fill a memory space shared by his family and friends and those who are touched by his music. My musical life has always been closely interwoven with his, and the rhythms he began to pass on to me almost 50 years ago continue to move me today.
3: I think the dawning of wisdom is to recognize one's limitations and I think everybody regrets that they have no musical talent but I think everybody has rhythm because in one's very being the heart is the rhythm and therefore everybody can express rhythm to some degree and one can learn to uh, sort of improve one's sense of rhythm by using some one's foot or one's hands or a bow on as the case may be so it would be true to say that everybody is potentially a bow player.